even in the midst of fire and smoke, you can still have disbelief. You yeah. can still have human nature that says, you know what, even though I know you're there and you've done wonders and miracles, I still want to go back into this life. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. With me today, we have Eric. Hey. And we've got Tracy. Good morning. And we've got Karen. Hey, how's that going? Karen, you sound so fun and optimistic. I'm not. It's all an illusion. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it's been, I don't know. The world is, it, it's just an odd place. And just, we just put on a smile and keep going. It's on yeah. fire. The world yeah. is stupid. It's on fire. I don't like it. I was say, we're kind of on fire. Well, we're not on fire, but I mean, we the last couple of days have been breathing in some smoke from some fires that aren't too far away. And uh, I didn't even know we were on fire. And then I just happened to look up to the west one day and there's a giant plume of smoke in the sky making an awesome sunset. But um, yeah, eyes are a little itchy and the nose is a little uh, sniffly yes. and it's and uh, you're as whiny as ever. So that's yeah. awesome. Hey, I don't like it. So anyway, uh, everybody's uh, up and running and ready to go. And um, so let's dive in this morning. We are starting out with Numbers chapter 8 this morning, today, and as we discussed here just briefly before we started recording, so these first few chapters are kind of what they call flyover country. They're, they're, they're not terribly interesting, honestly. Well, that's not, that's not a fair thing to say. There's just not a lot of meat there. Just some, uh, it's like Moses was just putting down some facts, and some of it's really just kind of recap of things we've already read. Um, he starts out by telling how the lamps are supposed to be arranged in the tabernacle. And he says, so that the light will be in front of the lampstand. I don't even really understand what that means. I don't know how you, if the, if the lampstand was shaped the way I thought it was, I don't know how you would have the light going any other direction other than like everywhere. Like we said, it was kind of like the menorah. So I don't, I'm not sure what his, uh, what his significance is there. I don't know if there's a lot of significance other than. Once again, things were supposed to be done in a particular way. A uh, little bit, though, it's kind of interesting here, was the cleansing and the dedication of the Levites. The, uh, the ceremonies they had to go through where they would start out, they would sprinkle water, they called it water of purification on them. So I, I mean, the, the first thing I could think, kind of think of is like you go into a Catholic church and they had, you know, they're sprinkling the holy water. I would guess it would be something similar looking to that. I don't know. And they were told to shave all their body. And I, I kind of wondered what exactly they meant by that. I mean, are they talking hair and beard? Are they literally talking, you know, arms and legs? And I don't know. Uh, they would have some uh, some sacrifices, <laughs> and that's one thing that I did get me thinking reading through this is all the sacrifice. I mean, you know, you always think of sacrifices in the Jewish culture. You would think, at least I always used to think. Basically, when you would sin, you would go make a sacrifice. But there was so much sacrifice for every little thing going on around this tabernacle. It just makes you wonder how much blood there had to have been around there. You know what I mean? Rivers. The thing that jumped out at me about that was, how do you retain a sense of holiness? 
How do you retain a sense that this is special, that this is dedicated, that this is somehow meaningful when your job mm. is like you're up to your neck in this process all day, every day? I, I don't know, man. I, I mean, the the people themselves seem to struggle to hold on to the the holiness of the process, and they only did it periodically. But the Levites themselves, like this was their calling. They were born to it. Well, I can't really say it's their calling. They were born to it because it was the tribe. And then from the age of 25 to 50, like they had their active assigned duties. Mm -hmm. I guess before that they were training. And after that, they would just assist other people. But it wasn't actually their responsibility. I don't know. It just it seems like it would be so easy to lose the meaning in the repetitiveness, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It does. Um, you know, I think of it makes me think of churches that have a regular, not just a regularly, but like a are always doing the uh, communion service. I mean, I think what the Catholic Church, I think they do it every day. I mean, I think you can go in and take communion every day, if I'm not mistaken. You know, mm -hmm. if they have a yeah. mass going every single day and with us, what we do it maybe four times a year in our right at our church and it, it kind of seems to be if if uh whoever's planning the 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 schedule fits it in or something you know i don't know but generally it's about four times a year and you know when it happens it's seems more special than if you were doing it every single day i don't know i don't have a context of doing something like that that often but um i'm with you it seems like you would be doing it so much you it would be almost hard to to maintain a, a, a reverence a sense, towards it. Yeah, a sense of reverence. I just kept thinking that as I read it. It was like, oh, my goodness, that would be so difficult. Other than, you know, it's always coming from the same place. Like you said, rivers of blood. I mean, if they're doing this many sacrifices all the time, it seems like every day, you know, every ceremony they're doing, it's like sacrifice a bull, sacrifice a lamb, sacrifice a goat, sacrifice a couple of goats, a couple of lambs, a couple of bulls. Uh the place is, it's just not going to, it's going to look, seems, seems like it would not look great, but it's all surrounded by, you know, the tent and stuff, but still, that's just a lot going on there. I think too, we got to remember that they probably did these on some special occasions and that's what they wrote down. Yeah. Um, there's not much to write if they weren't doing anything. Also, I think the Levites circulated through so they were it wasn't the same people necessarily mm -hmm. every 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 day because you got a lot a lot of levites and there's only so many that can fit in that tabernacle compound yeah and so they took turns doing that and i think that might have helped keep it from being the same people doing it every day for as we discover over 40 years mhm mm right well we get numbers uh, chapter nine, we get to talk about the second Passover. So that gives us some context of what kind of time we're talking about here. This would be, I guess this would have been a year later from when they had left Egypt. And we've been, <clears throat> we've been bouncing back and forth in the timeline here. And I know we talked about how we were going to, uh, you know, we're trying to do things chronologically, but the Bible just is not put down in chronological fashion because I think we've been bouncing around to the point where at some points we've already read like two years in, but now we're kind of backing up a bit here to, it sounds like, yeah, it's the first month of the second year of their, well, 
Yeah, so they've been there just a year. They're just now coming into the second year and is talking about doing the second Passover. Now, the real significance here, though, is, you know, we've been reading all these laws and regulations that would uh, disqualify a person from being able to partake in some of these things. And so there were a few men, I don't remember if it said how many, but um, who had been, quote unquote, defiled and were unable to keep Passover because they were essentially unclean. And they came to Aaron, I believe it was Aaron, and they said, you know, we want to do this too. What's up with that? And um, essentially, God says, you know what, you're right. You need to be able to do this. And I really like that where we've been talking a lot about how God is very particular. He wants us to do certain things, but he still makes room for us in our inadequacies where he says, "Okay, you guys, because you want to do this, you can come and do it one month later. You'll be you will be purified, clean, whatever you want to call it by then. And then you guys can still keep Passover, even though it's not going to be at the exact time I told you to do it. You guys can do it a month later. You can still have part in this thing. In fact, I want you to have part in this thing. And um, we're going to make special arrangement for you. Yeah, no, was, go ahead. I thought that was really neat. And yeah, it's worth noting that although there was that grace offered, there was there were some boundaries around it. Like, OK, this is this is the thing you do. You don't you don't get to you don't freestyle how this goes. Mm-hmm. And on also on the flip side was okay if you are clean and able, and if you're not out traveling, because that was the other thing. If you know if you're just not even in town, you don't you know you can come back and do it a, a month later. But if you have no good reason for not doing it, you're gonna be in some serious. You're gonna have some troubles here. He said his that man shall bear his sin. So if you just decide, I just don't feel like it. I'm not going to do it. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna pass this time. God was not cool with that. You know, I was thinking while I was reading this too. You know, he had already made concessions for, you know, looking ahead for different opportunities. Because right now, looking at this, where would you be traveling to? You were in the middle of the desert. <laughs> Everybody was together. So you know, being that large of a group. It's not like you could just say, you know, it's Passover. I'm not going to do it. You guys go ahead. I'm just going to stay here in my little tent. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They were moving together. It had to be togetherness at that point. But there were still concessions sent for the future. And if you're out traveling and doing this, but it's like, okay. Yeah. Well, there still may have been reason for people to go off on little side journeys and back and whatnot. I mean, they, they weren't. I don't think they were terribly far away from anywhere. I mean, like we know, it should have only taken them just over a week to get to their promised land. But no, you know, so it's not like it's not like they couldn't have gone off, gone to a town to get something or gone over here or gone over there and come back relatively quickly. You know, I don't I doubt they would have been gone for very long. But, yeah, the idea that God makes some concession for them just in case, something you know, if something comes up and you just can't avoid it. You know, we're still going to uh, we're still going to let you take part in this thing. And that and Passover was tremendously important because, you know, it was big for them to remember where they had come from. And <laughs> we'll, we'll read a little later. We knew exactly where they came from because they wanted to go back. Talks a little bit again about the cloud and the fire. We've talked a lot about that. 
cloud, uh, the cloud by day, fire by night. And when the cloud would lift, Israel would travel. And we talked over the last oh, episode or two about how, you know, the order that they would go in as they were camped around the tabernacle. He says that the command of the Lord, and it says whether it was two days, a month, or a year. So however long they would be staying there would be 100% up to them watching what that cloud was going to do. And it's kind of sounding like here there was no regular set intervals for this. It was however long God decided they needed to stay where they were. Uh, Numbers 10 talks about two silver trumpets. So this would be for calling the congregation, for directing the movement of the camps. And if uh, both horns were blown, that meant that the congregation would gather at the door of the tabernacle. If one was blown, only the leaders would gather. Uh, if they would sound the advance, that would mean the camps on the east would begin moving, because you remember the, the tribes that camped on the east, they were always the first to pick up and move when it was time to go. When the advance was sounded the second time, the camps on the south would go, and I would imagine it probably you know, progressed from there. The priests would be the one who, ones who would blow the trumpets. They would also be used as an alarm for war. And they would be blown over sacrifices for feasts and beginning of months. So that would be something else coming out of that tabernacle all the time. Because remember, nobody really got to look inside the tabernacle except for the priests. And uh, you'd hear those trumpets coming from inside. Been, it would have been kind of interesting. I thought now, of it like small towns. If you've ever been in the Midwest... And you're not used to this? Like at noon, the mm. sirens go off. Like, like why is there a tornado? I was like, no, that's just lunchtime. Yeah. like they I had, remember that. Jeez, I hadn't thought about that in years. But, uh-huh. I mean, they had they had these trumpets for all kinds of – that was their clock. You yeah, know? right. I mean, it wasn't yep. like they sent out a text to everybody. and was like, oh, whoop, yep, time to pack up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of my military days. Wake up and go to sleep by trumpets. <laughs> I wanted to when Eric started. I was going to say "Revelly, Revelly." That's how we always got up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess you would have some. Well, I mean, this really was kind of a military complex they had going on. It was a you know religious and religious and military thing happening. So yeah, makes sense. Now, uh, let's see. The twentieth day of the second month of the second year sounds like this was the first time the cloud really. Took up, and they moved from where they were, and they settled in what's called the wilderness of Paran. And so they broke camp. They traveled according to their companies, and it mentions here just a little side thing. It was kind of interesting that Moses invited his brother-in-law along, and his brother-in-law sounded kind of reluctant to join them. But Moses really wanted him, and it didn't. I don't know if it really came right out and said that his brother-in-law did join, but Moses wanted him there. Now, brother-in-law or father-in-law? Uh, it was uh, Hobab. In 29, that's um, Moses' father-in-law. Because Moses' father-in-law had two different names. Am I looking at the wrong scene here? Oh, and Moses 10? said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, comma, yeah, Moses' Ruel, father-in-law. Ruel was his father-in-law. I thought right, it was, right, right, uh, right, right, I thought we right. established that was Jethro Tull was his father-in-law. <laughs> You're right, you're right. Hobab is rural son. No aqualungs right. in the desert. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll yeah, see that actually Jeff. Moses' father-in-law, his wise advice in setting up the uh, 
the 70 elders, which I believe we go through again here, mm-hmm. is a thing that leads to some problems in chapter 12. Some jealousies going on. So, yeah, so Hobab, yeah, I didn't understand whether Hobab was there and uh, Rule slash Jethro was, I think he was there for a while and then gone for a while. I don't know what his status was right now. Yeah. It sounded like they, well, see, that's one of those things where you remember how Jethro had had been, well, Moses' wife had been staying with Jethro and then Jethro had brought them out. So that just tells you again, this whole time, they're relatively close to, to different uh, civilizations, different groups of people. So they're, they're never very far from ever, anybody here. They're just kind of out there and everybody knows they're there. Numbers 11 gets interesting. The people start complaining. Now we know that if you've read the Bible at all, you know that the Israels like to com- Israelites like to complain, and it doesn't even necessarily say what particular in particular they were complaining about. I don't think, but it says it complained and it displeased the Lord because He heard it, and some of the people it says got consumed by the fire of the Lord. And when I was wondering if this is the fire that was, you know, over the tabernacle, or if this is more of an allegorical fire, you know. But it sounds like maybe what they called the mixed multitude were kind of the instigators of this. So the mixed multitude would have been, I believe, the non-Israelites who had come with them out of Egypt. Right. And they kind of started grumbling and complaining, and the Israelites kind of got caught up in it. And it was causing trouble. Oh, they're, they're complaining about the manna. That's what it is. So they've been getting fed every day. We remember that. They've been getting fed every day with this manna, and they're growing a little tired of it. But I think this is the humanistic flair. When I was reading this, doesn't this sound like, though, when you're you're out camping or something, and you've been there for, for a while, and you're eating the same thing, you start to reminisce about the things that you want. And that's what I got from reading this, because they mm-hmm. went down the list. When, it was, when we were in Egypt, we could eat fish. And cucumbers and leek, they went down the list. You know, when you want something so bad, that's what you, exactly what they did here. That was the humanist part of this part. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> my son lives in Hawaii on Big Island, where things are rather untamed. And one of the things he likes about this area is that basically during any time of the year, there's multiple types of wild food growing. And you can literally pack up and go camping with your friends, just walk off into some point in the wilderness and just camp on the side of a hill or whatever, find a river and camp nearby it, and not even take food supplies. Mm. Well, one time he went camping in an area and at a time of year, because he wasn't too familiar with the, with the island yet, and he found out that the, that the only thing that there was to eat was plantains. Mm. And they weren't ripe yet. So he spent the weekend eating raw green plantains. And then by the end of the weekend, he thought he was going to die. Absolutely thought he was going to die. Like, all I want is mashed potatoes and gravy. Like, this is terrible. And (laughs) they ran into some other campers. And they were like, oh, hey, we, we have food. And he said that him and his entire group of friends... And they've been out there three days. Like, we're not talking an extended period of time. We're not talking eating manna for months, right? After three days, he said him and his friends' faces lit up and, like, they're, all of their mouths started watering. And they're like, yeah, 
we would like some food. What do you have? And they're like, oh, we found a bunch of plantains here. We roasted them. So, <laughs> oh. so then he got roasted plantains. Oh, yeah. man. See, and that's, you know, and that's three days. Yeah. 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 No, I can imagine. I was on a. I was on a, a backpacking trip here a few years ago. I, I tested out my knees and probably the last time, but um, uh, we had pretty much nothing but, you know, packets of tuna and crackers, you know, anything light because we were, you know, picking up camp and moving, you know, everything you were carrying is on your back, of course. And so everything's got to be light. And after a few days of eating tuna, you're just going, mm, I don't want any more tuna. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the, and at first you're like, oh, this is fun, you know, and then after a while you're like, oh, no. <laughs> and from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, pff, come on. You're getting mm. you're getting divinely provided food every day. But mm-hmm. anybody who's actually eaten the same food every day is, you know, and it's and the Bible describes the taste. It was sweet. It tasted like bread with honey. You know, it was sweet. So yeah. what what are they making out of it? Anyway, I, I, I get it, but yes, it's whiny and they shouldn't have done it. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because they're complaining, but then Moses comes and he complains to God. And so I thought it might be interesting to talk about the difference of the complaint here because the people are complaining about food, but then Moses comes along and he says, how did he put it? 1013, where am I supposed to get meat to give all these people? Yeah, well, there's that and, you know, how, he's just talk about... um. Yeah, basically, what are we going to do? How am I supposed to do this? It's kind of funny, though, because he's. it seems to me he recognizes something here that could take place, but nobody has thought to do it. Because he says in verse 22, chapter 11, verse 22, shall yep. flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? And I'm thinking, well, yeah. You know, I how much how much flocks and herds do they have, have with them? I'm guessing quite a bit. They've been there for a year. Animals are going to be mating and making little baby baby animals. And it's just interesting to me that it seems like nobody thought, hey, you know what? We could eat those things. But I don't know. I like verse 23. I like God's response to him. Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Do you somehow think that I am incapable of meeting your needs? Mm -hmm. Now you'll see that I will do what I say. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. good stuff. It is. It's it's kind of like God is. It's almost like God has purposely put them into this position where they've they just have to rely on Him. Well, and, it says that. I mean, it says that throughout the Bible. You know, His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Yeah, yeah, and they they just have to rely on Him. And even when things seem to be getting worse, got to lean in harder. You just got to keep relying on God to to take care of it. Yeah, we get into that in 13 and 14 as well about this trusting God to do what they can't do. And I think that this is it is it is easier to talk about from our respective homes at this point, but the this as they say the struggle is real. And I think they're they're drug, they're struggling with their size challenges. We had some stuff this week at our home. I've got an 11-year-old and one of the struggles that he was having seems to him, anyways, insurmountable. And to most adults, it would be it would be truly an inconvenience, but not insurmountable. And the discussion was, you know, when you're when you're 11, there's a problem that's as it's bigger than you are, right? Even though an adult can look at it and say, you're actually it's not going to kill you. 
But to an 11 year old, it looks like it will. It looks like mm-hmm. it's, it's impossible. And to these Israelites, this this looked impossible. There are several things going on. There's the there's the complaining. There's the and where they wish they could go back and be slaves again. And I had a note here that, and we often do this. We would rather go back to the slavery that we knew, slavery to you know bad habits or addictions or relationships. We'd rather go back to that that we know instead of God's future, which is unknown. Mm-hmm. As they're dealing with this in verse twenty, God's talking um, about the the meat situation here, and I don't. It's this is this is more than just a hey. We'd like to change in our diet a little bit. This is this is something pretty intense. I'm going to guess because God's response to them is pretty intense. Yeah, it is. It says you know you eat it a whole month. This is in eleven twenty until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord. I love that phrase. It's going to come out your nostrils. The the point here is is that they've rejected the Lord with this. They've said, you know what, we don't trust you. And this this is, is, is going to come up in 11, and it's also going to come up in 13 and 14. And with your permission, I want to read a few uh, verses in 1 Corinthians. Sure. It's 1 Corinthians 10, and the the heading is uh, warning against idolatry. But this is, this is what it says. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Here's that Christophany. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, most of them with, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. And this is why I'm reading this, is because this isn't just, you know, pointless history. It's a history lesson that has nothing to do with us. Because Paul is saying, yeah, this has to do with you, New Testament church. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, quote, the people sat down to eat and drank up and rose to play. That's the golden calf. We must not indulge in sexual immorality if some of them did, which I think was also golden calf. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That was the Levites when they became uh, set aside. We must not put Christ to the test. That's exactly what we just read in um, in Numbers eleven. As some, although it says here, um, because you have rejected the Lord, that's the personal name Yahweh. And here, Paul is saying that is putting Christ to the test. Well, a lot of people like to draw this line, like, oh, there's the Old Testament God, and then there's a the New Testament Jesus. He's saying, no, same thing. Do not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Do not grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ages, the end of the ages has come. That's us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then it goes into the famous verse, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. So he, all of those things are directly pertinent to what we've read over the last few weeks. And what we'll finish up with today, that these are examples 
given to us for a purpose. Mm, right. When I was reading over this, and I, you know, this is, these are early days for the Israelites, you know, a little baby nation trying to figure out how to follow this to, to them, essentially a new God, rather than being sort of immersed in the multiple God system of Egypt. And, you know, if, if we now with all of our history, like we've got the entire Bible spelled out for us, we've got generation after generation after generation to learn from. And our, our faith, you know, lasts what, eight seconds or whatever. And then we're, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Why am I even, why am I even trying? Like I did the right thing for a week. You understand? I did the right thing for a week. Where's my, where's my, where's my payout? I should have just stuck with what I already knew. And, and so like that sort of like, like, like what Eric was saying, it's, there's the known versus the unknown. There's the familiar versus the new. There's also the easy versus the hard, you know, and this, it just, it's just such, it's such cliche human behavior. And I, you know, here we are, world's on fire, 2020, everything's going wrong. And, you know, you can see it like people are rattled. They don't have, they don't have what it takes to absorb this kind of thing. And, and it's awful. It shakes people to their foundations and they want to panic and they want to run back to these, these small symbolic things that make them feel safe, which have nothing to do with their actual safety. That's in God's palm. I think it goes along with, just like you said, it's, you know, that's our foundation. And at this point in time, they're building that foundation and you could still see those human aspects to it where even in the midst of fire and smoke, you can still have disbelief. You yeah. can still have human nature that says, you know what, even though I know you're there and you've done wonders and miracles, I still want to go back and be a slave. Yeah. Like, and like, like what Paul says in Corinthians, these guys were, you know, baptized into Moses. They had the cloud, they had the fire, they had the Red Sea, they had the miraculous escape from Egypt. They had all of these things literally happened within their lifetimes. And they're still, you know, and it, and it is, it's, it's comical the way, the way God says it. Cause he, cause he all but loses his temper. You're going to eat meat for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and you loathe it. Right. But because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Like trust that invisible path before you. It's uncomfortable, but it is God's palm. Scary stuff. It really is. <laughs> We like sick. to see where we're going, and when we can't, it's you know, it's terrifying. It's it's unnerving. It's unnerving in a in a world where we're really kind of taught by our society to trust what you can see and follow the norms, you know. And when you have to step out outside of those things and trust the things that people can't see and trust things that other people don't trust in, it's unnerving. Yeah. I am uh, a um I am a I am a planner. I'm not known for my wild spontaneity in life. And so when I when I read things like the Israelites had to pack and leave whenever the cloud lifted, I think to myself, couldn't couldn't you send a text like a week in advance and say we're gonna we're gonna take off in seven days, so start getting ready? Like like it just it, there's yeah. just a little bit of heartburn there. Like, why do I have to look every morning? <laughs> It would require a state of constant preparation. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, like I said, it could be it could be two days. You know, don't dig in too deep because you you could be getting up to go at any time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. 
And when you're when you're God and you're forming a new nation and you're trying to make them be your children, that's a good way to set yourself up to be their leader with their focus on you. But mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. yes, human nature is far more self-centered than that, I think, yeah. on average. And it would be hard to maintain that without losing your temper or getting scared. Yeah. Also, well, Eric, I don't, um, I don't know if you ever buy your son T-shirts, but there is one for when he's having his angsty moments, because all kids have those. And it simply says on it, yes, but did you die? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> That's maybe a shirt that I should get. One <laughs> of uh, uh, a few years ago, I was watching Looney Tunes with my kids, and, and well, okay, I was watching Looney Tunes, and uh, but there was a Bugs Bunny was talking to Granny, if you remember Granny, and in this one it was a newer cartoon, and it was telling the story of when she was in uh, World War II, and they made her out to be like this super agent, you know, thing, but it gets to the end, and, and uh, Daffy Duck is like, "But did you die?" <laughs> You died, didn't you? <laughs> it yeah. was funny. It was funny well, to me at the time. My kids and I were doing that all the time. You died, didn't you? <laughs> so, uh, anyway, was anybody astounded by how much quail God gave the Israelites? Oh, my goodness. So much quail. A day's quail. Surrounded by it, a day's journey in any direction, and like three feet deep. Did you catch that? I read yes. that it was. I read I mean, that it was. They were two three cubits feet off the ground. Uh, did I read that what, wrong? Well, what I read. Well, maybe that. Maybe I, I don't know. The way I read to me. Let me see. What did it say? Oops. I changed. I turned pages already. No, I didn't. Fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side, about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. So maybe that's it. Maybe they're just constantly flying around at about you know waist high. Anyway, that's a lot of birds. Well, the, the 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 birds. Did you read how much they gathered each? Yes. Yeah. Oh and did my you word. did you look at the footnote as to how much that is? Yes. However deep the birds were, they the how much they gathered. It might might as well have been three feet deep. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were gathering birds. Well, I saw they were gathering them for two days. I mean, oh, well, and so uh, let's the, see. The least Ten that homers. they gathered was two homers, and a homer is two hundred and twenty liters. Yep. 400 liters of birds. Wow. You figure each bird's maybe a liter? You have 400, 400 birds. You couldn't carry that much. Wow. It'd take you days just to carry that much per person. How, how, and you, they can't preserve stuff. Like, what were they going to do with it? Well, it said they dried, They spread them out. Yeah. Oh, I suppose they could dry, dry, it. dry it out. You can make jerky from birds. Well, that's jerky. what I figured. But, but I wondered, though, here, help me out with this, is they got all of this. But then again, we're, we're kind of out of order here a little bit. In, but in 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, and these people were struck down with a plague. So, I mean, like, did they even, I mean, they had enough to eat for a month, but it sounds like they didn't get through the first meal. Yeah. So I'm not sure if they actually did, if the ones who didn't die ate it for a month, or everybody who was lusting for this died with a plague. I well, 34 kind of sort of alludes to it. It says, therefore, the place was named Kiproth. Whoa. I, Atava. That's sure. Yeah. Because there they buried the people who had craved other food. So it could have been, I know that 
like if you go back to Mount Sinai and you think about the golden calf, I think there was a group of troublemakers who kind of started it and pushed it. And it could have been the same with this. Maybe it was the mixed multitude. Maybe it was just renegade folks. But yeah. you know what I mean? Like it, it, yeah. it appears to make some delineation between like these people died because of this and other people didn't die because they didn't do that. Yeah. Like you yeah. said, Kib- Kibrath Hatava literally means graves of craving. Yeah. So you were you were you were killed by your your uh, by your cravings, by your lust of food. There you go. Just, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I would imagine they probably just got so I mean, I, I, maybe they just got so excited to have something different that they gorged themselves. I don't know. But, um, you know, it, and then it brought up this point, too, is, OK, so. Knowing all the, the like the dietary stuff that we went over and how ravenous they were for meat, does this mean maybe they they tried to pluck them out of the sky and eat them? I don't know. I could see that. That sure could be. You know, I could see you know, that and through the could, of actually cooking them and, you know, you know, removing the blood and, you know, that kind of thing like we had went over. But they had just literally, you know, some tartar action. Yeah, I suppose I could account for them getting sick and dying. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know some people are able to do that, but um, I wouldn't want to try it. No. <laughs> so before no. we go to 12... I want to skip back into the kind of the, the, the latter third of 11, just real quick. And this is Moses mm-hmm. dividing up the people. And this, there are 70 um, elders that were called. And then there's an interesting thing. There's two men. It's in verse 26, Eldad and Medad, who mm-hmm. did not show up to the to the tabernacle. Uh, I read in another book, it's uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, that they didn't show up because not as an act of rebellion, but they didn't feel that they were worthy. Right. And they start every all the sixty-eight who are there are prophesying, and this is to sh- this is God showing everybody. It's like, hey, look, these people are called, and they're set aside, and they do in fact work with me. And so there are sixty-eight are prophesying. Then word comes that Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And this is really interesting in twenty-eight. And Joshua, the son of Nun. The assistant of Moses from his youth, which is the only place he gets dropped, is that Joshua has been beside Moses since Joshua was a youth. This is a this is a big deal. He says, "My Lord Moses, stop them." And Moses said, "Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them." That's a super cool thing that that mm-hmm. Moses is saying. Hey, I wish everyone were a prophet. But I think, and this goes straight into 12, Joshua's jealousy for Moses' sake. Now, Joshua is mo- is jealous for Moses' sake. And we find this kind of is a little bit of a theme through uh, 12, 13, and 14, is that people can be people can be right or they can be wrong, but their attitude of how they're right or wrong is a big deal. And in this case... Joshua's jealousy is misplaced. But then we get to 12. Let's look at that. That's an interesting contrast to this. It is. So uh, Aaron and Miriam, you remember, this is Moses' biological brother and sister. They start to develop some jealousy towards Moses. And um, how they put it, uh, you know, does anybody, how, 
it seems like there was some different jealousies going on here. Yes. But they're 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 jealous that God seems to be talking only through Moses. God has chosen Moses to be his mouthpiece, and they're feeling a little left in the dirt. And this is where I think they're pulling something else in here just because they're jealous in general, because it talks about them being jealous of his or some jealousy about his wife. It specifically says his Ethiopian wife. Almost like that was it was just like this little extra thing and they're like, Oh yeah, and his wife, you know. Um, at least that's kind of the way I was taking it. Oh yeah, so it's, chapter twelve starts that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Miriam and o- Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he'd married. So she's she's a bit of a different skin tone. Mm-hmm. She's darker, and they do not like this. Guess not. But it almost seems like that. Well, I don't know. It I, it doesn't seem to me like that is the the biggest reason because they go, you know, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? So it seems like maybe it's more a jealousy of Moses's chosen status than it is about his wife. They're just kind of pulling his wife in 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 also. I think it's just like with any other complaining thing. It's hard to stay on task, and so yeah. when you start to complain, you start to complain about everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So not only, you know, the, the, yeah, it's it's jealousy and this. Oh, and by the way, this and, you know, and and, and, and his hair sticking up, you know. Yep. And referring, you know, to patriarchs and prophets, it does say that, you know, what they were kind of put off too that he didn't pick a, a woman from his own, you know, I guess from from the Israelites. He didn't. Pick, yes. Yes. You know, and that was another thing. But, you know, I think it just goes back to. Once you get mad and and start, I guess maybe back backstabbing maybe might be a little too harsh. Criticism. Yeah, yeah, it just it it just compiles. It just starts to build up, and you just start to spew everything that's on your on your heart or on your mind. Yeah, and once it's somebody usually a lot because we're kind of not nice people and stuff. Yeah, and once you start getting, it seems like we love to pull down people that are up on a pedestal. We put them yeah. up on the pedestal. And then as soon as there's something that happens that we realize, oh, wait, that person's a human being, too, we start tearing them down more and more. And it's like we get to the point where we're almost gleeful to see their failures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Our our old neighbor in the neighborhood where I used to live was a guy who had, shall we say, exported himself from the poor section of Atlanta and moved up here to Colorado. He was a single dad black guy came from a poor black section of Atlanta. And he said that on the two mile stretch of road where he lived, he was related to 95% of them. And they were habitually poor and habitually whiny. And when he wanted to better himself and when he wanted to get his nine-year-old son out of that atmosphere so that he didn't compound it to the next generation, they were actually furious with him and they tore him down and tore him down and tore him down. His first idea was to start a business locally that would help the local youth, give them a place to go after school so they weren't committing crimes and they weren't acting stupid. He said he received zero support from his family or friends. Like, uh-uh, we're not going to better ourselves. We're going to sit here and be mad. We're going to sit here and be mad. And he finally moved all the way to Colorado. Like he researched the entire nation and moved to Colorado had moved into plain old suburbia 
just to show his son that he could be something different because his own, what he called, he goes, my own brothers, my own people wouldn't let me get up, wouldn't let me get up, wanted me to fail openly, would just sabotage any idea I had. He said it was ridiculous. I had to get out of there. It's like, it gets like these, you know, these communities, they get, you know, any group of people that lives closely with each other, you know, you get your, your pet topics and, and, and tearing other people down as part of it. Like, mm -mm, if I'm going to sit here and be mad and not succeed, you're not going to succeed either. I'm going to take you down and keep you right here with me. Yeah. It's nasty, nasty, nasty human nature. We call that the black crab syndrome. What? That's exactly what you're talking about is that. How it was described to me when we were in Oakland is that it, it's pretty prevalent that that happens. And it's called the black crab syndrome. When you put black crabs into a bucket, they won't, they'll start going towards the top. But every time they get, one gets close to the top, another one pulls it down. Oh. So they all stay in the same bucket or the same for habitual, perpetual state of being um, in poverty or disconnected from you know, excelling. Disenfranchised, whatever the issue is. Yeah. 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 Well, I think we're all, we all, we all have that to some degree where we, uh, we have we to tell each, we, we tell each other we're supposed to lift each other up. No, lift up your brothers and sisters, you know, help each other do good. Women be there for each other. Men be there for each other. This is humanity. And yet when it comes right down to it, it's kind of like, uh Oh, you know, there's like this little element of competition. And if I'm not getting ahead and I'm not doing what I should, then if I see somebody else actually getting ahead or starting to do what they should or getting their life together or their act together or whatever, something in me goes, mm, that makes me uncomfortable because it reflects on me. You should get back down here. Back yeah. in the bucket, boy. You know, when I was looking at this, too, what, what I thought was just outstanding is that that God said in 7, in 12, 7, he's like, nobody is faithful in all my house except Moses. And for you to, to talk badly about him, this is exactly what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so in summary, what we've got here is that they're complaining. They're saying, hey, you know, first of all, we don't like who we married. And God's spoken through us, too. How come we're not leaders like he is? How come we don't get this honor? And then it drops in here that Moses was very meek. Uh, in, in three, <laughs> I love verse three. <laughs> More than all the people who were on the face of the earth, I love verse three because you got to remember that Moses is the one who wrote that. And and that's what I'm King, thinking. I'm like, wait, what? In the New King James, it says, "Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth." I'm like, thanks for letting us know, Moses. I'm picturing Moses with a feather quill. There, going, mm hmm. I am so I'm humble myself. <laughs> I am humble. I am the most humble. You have no idea how humble I am. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. We totally derailed what you were Sorry. saying. I say, well, th but this this chapter is very interesting because it it contains um, racism, criticism, judgment, punishment, and one thing through this is Moses' intercessory prayer. We see that this has value. For for this for the healing of of their relationships, and for the uh, divine intervention in her healing, and all these things, it's a very uh, I don't know. There's there's a lot of power in that. I think 
because Moses did, in fact, he, he says he, Moses cried to the Lord mm-hmm. and her punishment was still there. It couldn't be winked at. And people took it pretty seriously. They all stayed in camp until she was allowed to come back. Anyways, it's a very interesting chapter, not very long, but um, an interesting one. Yeah, it was interesting because Miriam did get forgiveness, but she still had to go through the consequences of, of her actions. Yes. So forgiveness doesn't mean that you just get off scot-free. You, uh, you're still going to have to deal with things, but you know forgiveness is there. All right. So here we are at what should be the end of a chapter of them in the desert. They are mm-hmm. right up at the border of uh, Canaan in chapter 13, verse 2. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel, which is, I think, is a thing that's really important as we read 13 and 14. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're fine. They're right at right at the cusp, right at the border, pretty much, of what their people have been promised for generations. And yes. it's right there. And, okay, let's send in 12 guys from each tribe. Go check it out. See what we're going to be dealing with. And all but two of them. Come, I mean, they go and they see it. This place is amazing. I mean, it talks about how they carry a cluster of grapes on a pole between two of them. Now, I've seen some clusters of grapes, you know, and you could throw them in a backpack. These guys had to tie them to a pole and carry it between two of them. And that's just grapes. I want Man. to go to there. Yeah, it makes me wonder. I mean, are you, are you eating a grape like an apple? You know, I mean, are they are they huge, or is it just so many grapes on a on a on a cluster that that uh, they that they weigh that much? And these guys are gone for forty days, and when they come back, though, because they've seen what they what's it called the uh, the descendants of Anak. If we think back, I mean, these are these are big dudes, if I'm not mistaken, because they do say yeah. they're on there's giants, yeah. and. They come, they come back, and they're like, there's no way we can take this thing. Uh, except for two of them. Because Caleb is like, man, let's go. Let's go right now. It's right there. We can just we can just go in there and have this. And Caleb's like, let's do it. And the other guys are like, no, we, uh, we, sh- we, we should turn back. We can't, we can't do this. See, but I think it's, once again, it's, it's back to what Eric was just alluding to, is that they missed, they missed it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That what God's God told them, I'm giving it to you. But once again, they missed that part. They thought it was something human that had to be done, that they had to go and conquer it. And he was saying, no, I'm giving it to you. But once again, they missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, th- yeah. So 13 goes right into 14. It's all the same story. And to Tracy's point in 14, eight, uh, this is Caleb talking and he says, if the Lord delights us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel and do not fear the people of this land, for they are bread for us. It's like, we're just going to eat them. Don't worry about that. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What do you guys think of this reference in um, in verses in verse 33? Verse 33. What chapter? 13. Oh, 13. Oh, the Nephilim? Yeah. What do you guys think of that? 
There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giant. Or that, oh, sorry. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were, and so we were in their sight. So, so huh. one of my translations, I've got a side by side here. One of my translations calls them um, the Nephilim. Yes, actually, mm-hmm. a couple of them do. Yeah, yeah, and if you way back in Genesis, remember us talking about the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And we we talked about what that meant. What we do know is they were big. They were giants. They were very human here. I mean, in Genesis, people are like, oh, maybe they're descendants of, you know, aliens or angels. But as we run through Numbers and Joshua and so on, as we see them doing battle, they're very human. Mm-hmm. Very big humans. Very big humans. And they are a race that is that shows up, you know, again and again. If that's that's my take on them. Okay, I was just curious. And it's, what's interesting is that these people, these these Nephilim, these giants. Not, spoiler alert here, so plug your ears if you don't want to know how this turns out. Is they go back into the desert, they wander around for another forty years, and then they come back and they go into the promised land. They do battle against all these people. This years and years and years in the in the going. And then when Caleb is old, I believe he's close to 80 years old, he says, hey, now can I have my piece of the land? And he wants what's left over is the mountains because these same people, these giants are in the mountains and nobody else wants that land. He's like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go fight him and and I'll win. And he does. He goes, he's 80 years old and he's still swinging a sword and he goes in and pushes these people out. So he's not he's not full of. Again, my 11-year-old boy, he can he can talk some trash about what he's going to do with basketball or kickball or whatever, how how awesome he is. He He's talk. He's 11. Caleb is like, he, for real, man, he shows up when he's 80 and he is still kicking booty. So he's he is a guy who practices what he preaches and the Lord did, in fact, give it to him. Really interesting. You know, so as we go, I was going to bring up, you know, to to kind of piggyback up Eric is that that was his character from the very beginning. You know, he's like, give me another mountain. You know, how many 80 year olds can say, you know, I'm just as strong today as I was at 20 or still have the same mental outlook to say, you know, give me another challenge. Lord, give, put me in that place. And that being said too, is that he didn't, he didn't take the, the prime spots when they were divvying up the land. He was the leader at that point. And he said, you know what? I'll take what's left. And this is what's left because nobody wants it. And I'm ready for it. I'm up for the challenge. Yeah. Because I know where my power is. From that, you know, from him taking that promise and saying, I'm giving you the land, he took that and said, you know what? With God, I can do everything and accomplish all things. And I'm ready. Well, you talk about your black crab syndrome. Boy, the people come down hard on Joshua and Caleb here. Yeah, they're they're the only two of all the twelve of, of the. Well, sounds like out of like the entire camp, these guys are the only two saying, "Let's go, let's get in there, and let's do it." And everybody else wants to stone them for it. Yeah. This thing that they have been supposedly looking forward to their whole lives, their grandparents' lives, their grandparents' grandparents' lives, you know, for generations, and it's right there. And these guys are like, "Let's go!" And they're they, the people are like. Nope, not only nope, but we're going to throw rocks at you. Man, 
and God doesn't take kindly to this because he says, um, how long will these people reject me? And he actually offers Moses like Moses, I'm going to make a I'm going to make a nation out of you. We're just I'm, I'm ready to start over with just you. And uh, Mo- Moses keeps a cool head and he he again, intercessory prayer, man, and uh, sort of talks God down. I mean, I don't know that God was I doubt God was I, he would have. I suppose he would have done it if Moses would have said, sure, because. I guess it would have still fit within the original covenant because Moses was a descendant of Abraham. But Moses talks to God and says, you know, let's forgive these people. And God does forgive them. But here again, these people have to deal with their consequences. And they've spent a year out in the wilderness now. And they've built this tabernacle and everything. But these people, at least the adults, they will not see the promised land now. God says... Nobody, none of you, none of you are going to see it. Your kids will see it, but you're not going to see it, except for Caleb and Joshua, I think is what he said. They'll see it. Yeah. Yep. In 24, said, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which he went. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting, in 18, this is a very fascinating thing. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And usually that's where people will just quit the, the quote. But it goes on. It says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So it's not a one or the other thing. It's not just that God is a God of judgment and all this stuff, nor is it a God where it's like, you know, you all rejected me, but I'm going to make you, you know, unreject me which the people try later in 14. We'll get to that. It's a sad, sad thing. But anyways, in 18, it's important. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clear the guilty. Mm-hmm. And that's not the first time we've heard that either. because it was, No, it uh, isn't. We saw it in Exodus, and even part of that is right in the third commandment. Yeah. Shows so, up a lot in Leviticus. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'll, you can be forgiven, but you're going to have to make. This, this is. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. This is very much the the um, the definition of God that we should keep in our minds going forth. That He is He is grace graceful and He is gracious, but He's not going to just let you get off with whatever. And it reminds me of Revelation as we as that wraps up. It's like He is gracious and He has been patient. But then there's a point, I think I think the metaphor is his the bowl of is full. It's like, oh, okay, you've you've put enough into this and, and now it's time to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So the people are there said, Hey, look, you are gonna go back into the wilderness. Everyone except Caleb and Joshua is gonna die. And for you guys who said, Oh, our children are gonna be just victims, God says, Yeah, your little victims, they're gonna take over the land. It's too mm-hmm. bad it wasn't you. And this is another little interesting place. It's not the first time we've read it so far in the Bible. In 34, according to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, yeah. a year for each day, you shall yep. be, you shall bear the iniquity and no mind. So basically it's a prophetic thing. It's like, okay, a day for a, a year for a day. For every day you were in there spying it out, now you're going to be one year in the desert and you're all going to die. And you won't see what was promised to you. Back in Genesis 15, 16, it's like, hey, we're going to deal with these people. God says, I'll have patience for these people for many, 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 many years and generations. The Canaanites did not turn. 
Um, and God says, all right, now it's time to get them, get them out. But the people rejected it. And in the very, very interesting thing happens here in the, in the very end of the chapter. It's 39. The people, then they say, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Okay, we take it all back. We're going to go to battle anyways. And then in 44, but they presumed because Moses tells them it's too late. You rejected God. He's not with you. This isn't going to work. And they're like, yeah, but we're God's people anyways. And mm-hmm. they find out that wearing the T-shirt, putting the bumper sticker on their donkey and just name it, claim it does not work if you're not actually obeying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, second chance. I mean, God, God gives a lot of second chances, but this is one of those times where he's just like, not this time, folks. Yep. And they try. They try. They decide, you know what? Hey, let's go in and attack. And uh, they get they get soundly beaten on their own because it says, here we go. We're going to do this. And the, yeah. the whole earlier part was God's going to do this. And they rejected God. And God says, well, I'm not going with you. Right. And yeah, I'm not going with you. And, and it goes very specifically. It says Moses didn't go. Yep. The ark didn't go. Yep. They went on their own. And that was that. Yeah, and that that was that. If you haven't read it, guys, is they lose, they get beat back, right. people die. Yeah, it says uh, the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and oh, came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Horma. So it almost sounds like the people were gathering and the Amalekites and Canaanites came down and said, "Nope, smack down." Yep. Before maybe before they even got a chance to do anything. So yeah, if you're if God has set you up to do something, you have the opportunity to step in. Step in. And I know that's easy to sit here and say it because I know that we have all, I'm sure there's been times, every one of us, we've had opportunities to step into something that's been set right there in front of us and we we get nervous and we back off from it. And later on you go, oh man, I missed it. I missed it and I'm not going to get that back. And you know, it's easy to say it sitting here right here. Just, you know, step in when you have the opportunity. I guess what well, best we can do is just pray that, you know, God, when when it comes that time, remind me this is the time to step in. You know, help me to remember that. Help me to have the courage to step forward. Is uh that's where they that's where they failed there. They had their they had their shot and they should have gone in. They should have been out there. I mean, at this point, they should have been there just over a year. And uh nope. Now they get a wander. Sets them up for the next, is it 40 years from here now? I think it is. I think, I think so. So it's, it's 41 years from the time they left uh, Egypt. So 40 years from here, long enough for basically a generation to die off and their children to become adults. And uh, that's what we're going to see. I think that is going to wrap it us wrap it up for us this week. Remember that you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can find us on Facebook at uh, Adventure Through the Bible. Be sure to share the podcast. Be sure to subscribe. And uh, I guess I should have mentioned, I think we'll probably try to read through. It's looking like chapter 20 might be a good chapter to end it on next week. So we will pick it up for chapters 15 through 20. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye, guys.